Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Today, I'm talking with Chris Jones. I met Chris at a conference several years ago. We crossed paths because we both have a son with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But Chris has crossed paths with and influenced and touched hundreds of thousands of people around the world because of the way in which he has shared his son's journey. Duchenne attacked his son Mitchell's heart earlier in his young life than was predicted. Chris created a Facebook page to share updates with his family and friends, but soon the following grew. And as Chris and his family navigated the unimaginable, Mitch's final months and days, Chris shared his little boy's story, the spirit and the heart of Mitch, with the world. He let us all in to the heartache, the joy and the beauty, and to the grief. Chris and his family gained immeasurable support and love from the world, while changing that world for the better through selflessly sharing intimate moments from their own love-filled journey. Chris and I talk about all of it today, the diagnosis, the shock, grief and joy and despair, and finding meaning in all of it. There is sadness and brokenness in Chris's story, but his is not a sad story. It is one of courage and compassion, seeing the good and loving each other through the toughest of times. It is such an honor to talk to Chris and for him to trust me with his story. Good morning, Chris. It's good to see you. I'm so, so grateful to have you here on with us today. Thanks for having me. You and I know each other because we both have sons who have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I'm especially intrigued and inspired by your thoughts on on meaning, purpose in life, how we handle difficult moments. And so I really wanted you just to share today a little bit about your journey and especially your journey with your son, Mitch, your evolution as a dad and a, and a person over the last 10 or so years. Yeah, we, our little boy, Mitchell, was diagnosed at the age of three, which is a little earlier than normal. Because mostly these kids, as we know, don't really manifest the disease until they get a little bit older. But we were fortunate enough to have a sister-in-law, Natalie's sister, is a pediatric physical therapist. She began to recognize little breadcrumbs that something was off. And she happened to work with kids with DMD. And so without saying anything to us, she said, just come in and have a doctor take a look at them. And so I'm at work and my wife calls me and says, hey, they want you to come over. So I jumped in the car, ran over, and we had this really terrible diagnosis of DMD. It was really earth shattering because the doctor, we were lucky enough to realize that this doctor knew patients don't appreciate ambiguity. They just want to know the hard facts and then we can put all that stuff together in the future. 
And so she laid it all out for us and it was really hard. She had to tell several times what it was because we were just so in shock. We're like, okay, can you say that again? Like, what did you just say? Yeah, so it was a very early diagnosis. So Chris, for those in our community who may be listening, they understand what you're talking about, I think. But for some people, they're unfamiliar. So will you take us back, just pause right here to this part where you said, you know, you had to hear it a couple of times. What did the doctor share with you? What happened on that diagnosis day? What did you hear? Well, what she said was, you know, your son has a degenerative muscle wasting disease. It's 100% fatal. And she said, this is what we know of the timeline for now, the general timeline of the vast majority of children, you know, start manifesting these muscle wasting characteristics early in life. And then in their, you know, late teens, early twenties, it becomes pretty pronounced where they need assistance breathing and, you know, no longer have the use of their arms and legs. These little children can't roll over in bed. And if you think about how often you roll over in bed, it's, you know, we do that all the time to stay comfortable all night, but they don't move because they can't, they're just, the muscles are wasted to the point they can't use them. And so that was really hard for us. You know, it was interesting going back that the moment I saw Mitchell in the delivery room, I had a distinct impression that something was really wrong. And then for the three years preceding the diagnosis, it just kept pressing at me. And I remember telling my father-in-law and some other family members and really close friends and they all like, oh, you're just being nervous and quit being weird. But, you know, I felt like something was up and it was just interesting to see that come back and be validated in the diagnosis. Was that, Chris, your, I guess, suspicion that there was something up? Was there evidence of that? Did you see things or was it just like a deep kind of that dad gut feeling and something in your heart, you know, in your soul versus something you were observing physically. Yeah, nothing was observed. It was just that deep, almost spiritual impression as a parent would have over their own child, you know, knowing their wellness and well-being was, we're all, our radios are attuned to our kids. We seem to know things that we probably shouldn't know, but we know them. So Mitch was three. My Joseph was five when he was diagnosed. So I always say to people, he was perfect. You know, I I remember sitting across from a neurologist and getting the gut-wrenching, devastating news that he had Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I looked at Joseph and I thought, how can this be possible? He's so beautiful and perfect and happy. And there is something inside of him attacking his body. I think there's just a contrast there that's really hard to digest as a parent. And I have to imagine it's not unique to Duchenne, but it's universal whenever a parent gets a news like this. So we take him home and we're not sure what comes next. What came next for you? Well, the internet wasn't as full with resources and places to go and things to learn about DMD. In fact, it felt very threadbare. So I would go to the library and the bookstore and I'd order books online and have them come in. And I was reading books, textbooks that were coming from the 50s and 60s, and they really held no punches. So it was really hard. I have a a book on my bookshelf. It's entitled Realities in Coping with Progressive Neuromuscular Disorders, and it was meant for doctors. And I remember sitting around the kitchen table at midnight, you know, reading it in the privacy of, you know, night and just weeping, kind of thinking of what was to come. So it was hard. It was hard to know where to go to get information. So when Mitch was three and this was new to you and you, you have other children, how'd you navigate what was right in front of you in terms of life today and in the moment versus thinking about what was 
brewing, you know, what was to come for Mitch? That's a great question. And I think between my wife and I, we kind of, our natural inclination is Natalie would focus on the moment and let's just enjoy today. And I learned, she became my teacher to that regard. You know, I, I watched her and tried to emulate her because we can't worry about tomorrow. I mean, we can, but if it consumes all of our present moment, we're no longer living. We're living in some imagined future of which we really don't know. And so she always brought me to center, brought me to present. And for me, I was building a scaffolding way high in the air to go look in what's beyond the horizon. Can I see the storm coming and how can we brace for impact? Mm -hmm. And I think the way, because we allowed each other that space to be what we needed and wanted to be, it worked well, you know, because she brought me to center and I said, hey, here's what's coming. Here's what we can do to prepare. Mm -hmm. So what did you do to prepare, Chris? What did you see when you were building your scaffolding? Well, it's funny you say that because we trusted in our doctor and her milepost saying, hey, when these things happen, we're going to be introducing these interventions. So knowing the interventions that were coming, you know, we immediately, we sold our home, which isn't always necessary, but we chose to because we had a lot of stairs. And I thought, well, let's, let's get a home that's going to be more easy to navigate with the child with a wheelchair and future things. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The funny thing about Mitch is that he always seemed to be doing better than the other children his age with the MD. He was walking longer and we kept thinking, man, did they get this right? Like maybe they made a misdiagnosis. But I think the thing that I learned more than anything is that I can continue to imagine a future and get caught up in the, the storms that we often create are worse than reality. Who was it? Seneca, the you know, an ancient philosopher that said, we, we suffer more in, in imagination than in reality. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of me. And Natalie kept saying, hey, you know what? The kids are healthy. Right now, they're doing good. Let's be here. And so she always brought me back to center. So I didn't know you a number of years ago before I found your work and your writings online. I believe it was on Facebook, Mitchell's Journey. And there's just to me, when I hear you talk about Mitch's physical, the progression of the disease, what you could see on the outside and how he seemed to be doing so well there's just a cruel irony to the fact that there was more going on inside, perhaps, than you could have predicted or suspected. Mm -hmm. I say this, you know, with all respect and, and love for you and in your family is that I think Mitchell's progression took all of us by surprise. And I can't imagine how it took you and Natalie by surprise. But you, you started sharing your journey with the world. Will you tell me a little bit about that, about what inspired you to do that and, and what that was like? When we discovered Mitchell had heart failure and he was nine at the time, just about to turn 10, and it was pretty severe and pronounced. And at that point I made a little video and I, I own a media production consultancy. And so we do all kinds of creative works for people. And so it's always my impulse to try to use my art or whatever to kind of share my feelings and where we are at the moment. So I made this video like 11 minutes long and it was just about Mitchell's diagnosis. And I thought, well, we'll beat this. I don't know what the future is going to look like. And it, the video kind of ended with a little thread of, we don't know the future, but we're going to just lean into now. And, you know, that was the first real attempt to tell Mitchell's journey with the MD before, you know, we'd make comments here and there. And I would post these little things here and there, and people seem to have a lot of compassion, but it was after I posted that video about Mitch and his diagnosis, 
I thought, well, maybe I should just kind of carve out a separate Facebook page because I didn't want to be the kind of person that was always laying bare to everybody else who had their own problems. You know, here are my problems to add to the things you're thinking about. So I did that. And there was just a, you know, mainly for family and friends that chose to just follow that journey. And maybe we had, I think, 30 or 40 within a few months of people that followed, but it wasn't until things got really serious. You know, there's the rate at which his heart declined was so rapid and so acute that I started posting more. And I was like, oh, this is, I need to at least document this. By the time January of that following year came around, you know, and Mitchell's MRI had indicated that his ejection fraction was at 5%, whereas before, less than a year, it was at about 30 so it was pretty scary. And, you know, we didn't really know what was next. We got denied a heart transplant. And so we documented that and put it on Facebook. And, you know, we, people started to follow because I think there's a certain curiosity about how people deal with hardship. People, whether they recognize it or not, want to observe it for a variety of reasons. But I think in large measure, people want to, with compassion, understand what's happening and support and love. I agree. There is, I think there's a curiosity because we're all trying to figure out how do we deal with mm -hmm. whatever it is in our life that is devastating and difficult. So Chris, you did something though that I consider so incredibly brave and so courageous, so generous to the world is you really let us in. You let us in. And I know there are things you, you did not share and we, we didn't get to see everything, but you let us walk this with you as you were you were walking Mitch home and he was in his final his final days and his final moments, you shared him really what I believe became with the world, with thousands of people who were who were there for you. And tell me about that, how that was for you when you you shared and you told the stories about what was going on with your family. For those who haven't seen Mitchell's journey and haven't, you know, tuned in yet to your writings. Will you tell us a little bit about the final months and weeks and what you shared with the world and, and why? You know, by the time we got to the hospital and recognized, you know, we took Mitchell in at the latter part of, of January and we learned that Mitchell was at end stage heart failure. And the cardiologist had told us at the uh, SICU, cardiac intensive care unit, that Mitchell had days to live. And that was really a blow of blows. Like we had no idea it was that bad. Mm -hmm. So we do, we rush him home. And by this time, people are starting to see the message online. And I wasn't really ever doing it to get people to look at us or to make us feel better about our hardship. It was really about Mitch. Look at all these people that care about you. You know, a little boy that's in a hospital all alone and wondering who knows what a child's thinking. But I wanted him to know that people were cheering for him. And so we bring him home and, you know, not sure if he was going to go in three hours or three minutes. Like it was really touch and go, at least emotionally. Now, when we got home, Mitchell's health began to rebound. It seemed like everything was better and his vitals started to get a little better. And that's not uncommon. But then eventually a week and a half into the being at home, things started to then slide into critical. You know, having people join and watch this. You know, I, I had a lot of people write me privately and say, you know, hey, I at first I was morbidly curious. I just wanted this. How often do we get to see an inside track like this? But then they said something changed. I began to follow not because I was morbidly curious, but because I cared. And it caused it awakened in me as a reader 
an awareness about my own, the finality of my own life and how finite our time is. And they began to recognize I can step into being a better parent, a better spouse, a better brother or sister, son or daughter. If I can begin to recognize these little moments that are often so often seen as ordinary, uninteresting, when those are in fact the most profound moments of life. You know, the time we spend around the kitchen table, laughing and eating and talking, or you know, the living room or going on walks, little things that can make all the difference to the quality of our life. And that's what surprised me most, I think, is there was this juxtaposition of we're in an acutely difficult moment in our life and also trying to live it as normally as we could by reading books and doing the family routines that we were so used to. How do you describe Mitch? Mitchell was the most gentle soul I've really ever known. He was a giver. He was super funny too. The kid was smart as a whip. Just He was always surprising us with the level of his thinking seemed beyond his years. Mm-hmm. When you were going through this in the most difficult physical moments for Mitch and for your family, were you guided by any kind of a faith? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we are a family of faith and that gave us some context to wrap around the experiences, you know, that maybe we took a more spiritual view of the things that were happening as opposed to, oh no, his heart, you know, his blood pressure is dropping. And we started looking at things more spiritually and how he was showing up. Yeah. It played a big role in our, in our grief and our healing. And how was he showing up? How did you see the connection between faith and the meaning of this and you know, the way that, that Mitchell was showing up and what you saw in him, because you'd call him on many occasions, you know, your greatest teacher. You know, the way he responded to the realities he was facing, he did it with such humility. And he said, you know, hey, this is my path. This is how I, what God intended. This is what the universe intended. I'm, I'm, this is my path. And, you know, there's a great proverb that says, you know, the obstacle is the way. And Mitch kind of amplify that. He seemed to demonstrate that whatever's in front of me, this is my thing. And I just need to accept it, either go around it, move it, or bulldoze it, you know, to the best we can. Gosh, that's amazing, Chris, at such a young age, you know, that he had that kind of insight and soul. And I have to think that as a parent, you know, I know when Joseph was diagnosed, my gut reaction in a very, you know, profound way was, I have to figure this out there. We need to fix this. Did you feel that? And then how do you contrast that with a child who's so graceful? Did you still feel that just primal, you know, instinct to say, my job as a parent is to protect, to save, to make sure he's okay? Yeah. Yeah. There's that duality in, I think the way we approached it, which was one was acceptance that this is the path. And the other half of us was fighting in every way we could to save his life Mm -hmm. from the beginning to the end. There was enough complications and I think somewhat inner hospital politics going on that made the pathway for any medical interventions at the end precarious. And so we chose to just follow the path of, of, faith and the the recommendation of our cardiologist. Chris, you are from your writings. I know I've I've read so much of them. You are a man of of faith. Do you have after what you've you've lived through and your family's been through, do you have questions for God? 
Boy, that's a great question. You know, when I think about my own, you know, struggles, you know, they talk about grief and the stages of grief, and there's arguments about why that's a thing, or maybe it's not a thing. But this stage of anger has never really been my thing. You know, I lost my father when I was 19, and that was a very difficult time in my life, having lost somebody so dear to me. And I was never angry. And so when Mitchell's diagnosis comes to the table, I wasn't angry. I, instead of, you know, shaking my fist, at the heavens, I was saying, well, what am I to learn from this? And how can I navigate this treacherous path before me the best I can? And so I always looked kind of heavenward, as it were, for maybe a, a more gentle and also aggressive approach, but in the appropriate way, you know, get, get aggressive with the things I can change and, and accept the things I can't. And my faith had a lot, of, a lot to do with shaping me that way. Yeah. Can I ask you, do you talk to God? now all the time yeah all the time what do you say to him i talk a lot about what i'm grateful for and i ask regularly you know help me continue to see the things i need to see you know help me perceive the world as it is not as i think it is you know can i learn to see beyond the obvious to maybe the core the motivations of people or to the you know the intent of people who are trying to show up in the world Hmm, that's beautiful. So you talk a lot about the whole idea of, you know, whatever it is we're navigating, because, you know, I like to say nobody gets out of here unscathed, right? I mean, we are all one phone call, one knock on the front door, one doctor's visit, one scan away from being brought to our knees. Everybody's climbing a mountain of some sort. And if you're not at the moment, you probably will be at some point. It just seems to be an inherent part of life. You talk a lot about finding meaning in that and your purpose. Talk to me a little bit about that, about how do we find meaning and purpose in the pain? Great question. And I think that's an age-old human question. We all, like you said, no one gets out of this thing unscathed. We don't get out of this life alive. And so death and suffering are not only an inevitability, but it's a promise. You know, we're all going to encounter that. And you know, and I, I'm always surprised when people are shocked that they are encountering a hardship. Like, why me? I was doing all the right things. And I'm like, have you looked around? Like, do we watch the news? Do we listen to our friends that suffer? Everyone suffers. And like you said, if we're not suffering in the moment, yet, just put your seatbelt on because that, that time will come. So do you think that's the first step is just a sort of a mature acceptance of I'm going to suffer. It will come for me. It will be there. So what do we do with it? Is that where the meaning comes in? Well, and that's just the thing is that, you know, nothing has any meaning, but the meaning we give it. And so we get to decide what things mean for us. I can look at something to say that really tormented me or that thing really taught me. And, you know, we can each go through similar experiences. And though I am a proponent that we all suffer alone that nobody knows our own individual suffering because our relationship is unique with like, let's say the child with whom we're serving that we're trying to raise and has an illness of some type, or, you know, we have unique relationships and so our suffering is unique, but we get to decide what these things mean for us. And I think the moment we can look at pain as our teacher, if we can begin to look that way, and that doesn't mean it won't hurt. I can't think of a single thing that has taught me that doesn't hurt, but it sure teaches. What is your, what has your pain taught you? That's a really great question. 
My suffering has taught me the value of being pliable and humble and looking at suffering as a way to shape us. And so I think it wasn't uh, but a few months after Mitchell passed away, I wrote a, an essay called Boys Made of Clay. Mm-hmm. And it was about, you know, Mitch and his best friend who on Mitchell's deathbed, the night he passed away, he had held his hand and just said, I love you. You're going to be my best friend forever. And, you know, and I was just broken. But, you know, I learned in that moment of reflection that how important it is that our hard things can harden us. You know, they can make us angry and bitter and not let anybody in, or we can choose to allow the kind of tears of our soul to soften the clay within so that we can begin to shape ourselves in ways that are more useful in life. Chris, so you described that evening when Mitch's best friend was holding his hand. And when I hear you speak now, and you're so wise and you're so generous with your own growth and your journey, but you just said, you know, I was broken. So if you go back to that moment of brokenness of devastation as you've described it in being broken wide open and then you look at yourself right now today as we're talking i would love it if you could give some i guess some hope to people who are who are still at that moment of you know like when you were at mitchell's bedside when people are broken how do you get from there to here and i know it's different for everyone But is there anything we have in common that we all share? Or is there anything that gets us from there to here in in your mind, in your belief, that fuels that healing or that evolution? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we all have our own personalities that we approach things in unique ways. And that gives us either the tools to develop, you know, that hardship into something that's going to shape us. But I think one thing we all have in common, and even today, I'm a broken man. I've certainly picked up some broken pieces and put them back together. Another recurring theme in my writings has been about how we can perceive ourselves as the mosaic of self, that we are a creation of all the things we've ever experienced. I didn't feel broken open. I felt shattered. I felt that there wasn't a piece bigger than a dime of me anywhere. But I picked up all those pieces the best I could and put them back and arranged them a little differently. And that's what suffering does is we begin to go, well, wait a minute, this is no longer a priority for me. I, I feel differently. I view the world differently. I behave differently. So, but we're all broken. We never are not broken, but we can put those broken pieces back together in ways that are beautiful, that create a newer, more dynamic self. And Grief is really interesting. I mean, it's, I remember before he passed, I thought I knew what grief was. And then, you know, I didn't begin to taste grief until months and years after that the reality began to distill on us. And we had to cope with those really hard realities that we couldn't rewind time. We couldn't bring our son back. We couldn't do a do-over. You know, we had to just accept that this is now where we're at. But One of the most difficult things I think in grief, in my opinion, is the struggle that others around you, just like when our children are young and diagnosed and they seem okay and people slap you on the back, hey, everything's going to be okay. Look, you know, see, he's walking. And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand what's going on within. Right. Grief is so much the same way, is that behind the most beautiful smile can be a really broken soul. And you know what? It was a dear friend of mine who posted a meme the other day that says sometimes the people need help the most are the people that don't look like they need the help the most. 
And, you know, so anyway, down the path of grief, you know, people would say very unhelpful things like, oh, you know, from a religious perspective, oh, this life is but a blink. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, life is the longest thing I know. That's the longest thing I'll ever know in this life. So don't talk to me about short life. This is long. You know, other things like, you know, time heals all wounds. And there is an aspect that time can heal. But, you know, I have spoken to conferences with 6,000 people in a conference hall. And I remember speaking with tons of them individually, and they had lost their child 40 years ago, but it felt like they were still at day one. You know, so time doesn't always heal. It's the work of adding meaning and purpose and context to the experiences that help us move forward. You know, and I think that time definitely has helped. I think the first few years works, that was a really acute crucible, but over time and having done the work of examining my pain and deciding what that pain means for me, that was the greatest catalyst for healing. Mm-hmm. I would love, Chris, from your vast experience to hear your thoughts on how can we be there for each other? How can we take care of each other? Knowing that, as you said, our grief journeys are very individual, how can we love each other in the best way possible in light of our suffering? Really such a great question. I can't tell you how many emails people have sent me that said, I had no idea that when I started reading this blog that I would either lose someone I loved or experience a tremendous life tragedy or even have a child with DMT. So it's really interesting. And so... People want to figure out how to do this. What I've learned is that a lot of people struggle. They don't know what to say. They'll say, I wanted to write something or say something, go by your place, but I was so afraid I would say the wrong thing. And sure, I understand that. They want to walk softly in delicate places, you know, and not hurt people. But silence also is a pretty powerful thing. You know, it says many things. And so I found that the most useful thing to say to somebody that's suffering is, I can't imagine what you're going through, Mm -hmm. but I want you to know how much I care. I care about how you feel. I care about what you're going through. And if you ever need to talk, I will put down what I need to put down to be there for you. You know, just the whole notion that I care and I want to be here for you, whatever that needs to be for you. That's beautiful. I've used way too many words to describe it. The thing I've often said in my essays is that the most powerful thing you can do is sit with somebody and say, I care. Mm -hmm. That's all. You don't need to say anything else. You know, the greatest lesson that Dushan has taught me is that time is our most valuable commodity. You know, it's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter who you are. We all get 24 hours in a day and nobody gets more and nobody gets less. And it's the only resource we have that's we can never get it back. And so I think the most generous, graceful, you know, friendship-centered, the most beautiful thing we can give to someone is our time. Yeah. And even if it's just 20 minutes of sitting on the porch listening or being present or reaching out, time is, in my mind, it's the greatest gift that we can share with each other. Chris, if you think about Chris Jones when you were like 25, who was that guy? And who is he now at this stage of your life? I still think I'm 16 and I don't realize I'm well over 40 and it hurts. 
Yeah, the kid I was, I think at 19, 25, I think was still very much a tender-hearted person, just didn't have the awareness of suffering the way I feel like I do now. And so I think a new, more compassionate person has emerged because of the suffering I've gone through. So the difference, probably the biggest difference between me and my younger me is the depth of compassion for other people and their suffering. Do you feel like there's a flip side to that? Like you are more acutely aware of suffering, but are you also more acutely aware of joy and happiness? Yes. A thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, the degree to which we feel love and excitement and joy is really paralleled by the depth of our pain. They are kind of mirror images of each other. Yeah. I agree. I just talked to a family who has a fairly new diagnosis of Duchenne and, you know, everyone's in their own stage at different times. But I I said to them, I said, if you can just test the waters of leaning into the pain, you will also feel so much more joy because you're just, it's like all your nerve endings are sort of more alert and aware. They were like, well, who wants to suffer? And I said, pain is not the same as suffering, right? And I said, maybe just try it for a weekend, like just for a couple of days, say, hey, we're going to try it for the next couple of days, just really like not try to avoid it. And I think we just experience everything else more profoundly when we're willing to kind of take it all in. So how did they respond to that? They were open to it, but I think they were terrified. You know, it's like, well, who wants to be in pain? And I don't think it's an option, right? It's again, it's like we don't get to choose when this, it, when and if something comes to us and breaks our heart. It's what do we do with it? Amen. And yeah. how do we respond to it? That matters. Chris, you recently posted something. You have an essay and you titled it Broken Can Be Beautiful. And you talk about how that's just being mortal and flawed is that we all break at some point. And there's one part in here and, and I want to, read this out loud, and and I'd love for you just to tell me your thoughts on it. You say in this essay, you say, yes, to break can be devastating, but it can also be beautiful. I can imagine how probably all of us have observed how some broken people tend to hurt other people, but we've probably also seen broken people become healers. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that indicates to me we really do have a say in this, right? We have some choice. What does it look like to you when you see now with your your experiences and your wisdom with suffering, with grief, what does it mean for us to be healers? Because, I mean, we need more healers in the world today. What does it look like? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I'm working with several people on kind of a coaching level who are stepping into new spaces and they want to turn their suffering into a healing agent. And they think they always to a person will point to, but I'm so broken, how could I ever help anybody? Don't I have to have it all together? And I'm like, no, I think that's the heavenly paradox is that when we attempt to heal others, we can heal also ourselves. And not in one big brushstroke, it takes time and attention and intention over a period of time for that to really play out. Your qualification to be a healer comes precisely because of your brokenness. Because you're broken, you will speak to people in ways that those that only know the words but don't understand the music, you know, you will speak in a way that, that will heal people because you know what it's like to be broken. And you're speaking from a place of compassion. 
you can't fake it for very long. You know, you can say things that sound right, but if it's not in you, then, you know, we won't bear the fruits to heal because, you know, if we're working on the act of healing ourselves and healing others, boy, that's just a way that all ships rise with the tide. I agree. I think when we're open about struggle and grief and difficulty, we give other people the permission to be vulnerable and broken and open and, and to say it's okay. My gosh, Chris, I mean, you've done that in, a, in an exponential way, more than most of us could ever hope to do. But what I want to just spend a few minutes on is, you know, the grief and the, the journey and the difficulties, that's not all you are. I don't want to you know, have this talk and this conversation and be like, oh, that Chris Jones boy, he's, he's really good at suffering because you are, you are a joyful person. Like you see incredible beauty and there's laughter in your life. And so I wanted to ask you, this is real broad, but what makes you happy? Everything, like everything <laughs> makes me happy. I mean, it sounds like a dumb question, but like, no, it's awesome. I love that. I love it. I'm an explorer. I'm a, I'm a philosopher. I'm an inquisitor. Like I just, I love to peer into often unlooked corners of life, whether it's science, philosophy, religion, whatever. Like I love people. I love watching people and seeing how they show up. I love helping people. Like I find so much joy in helping anyone that crosses my path. Photography, I love funny things. My kids came over for my birthday the other day and we all played board games and it was just a hoot. And that's, I think, where social media becomes complex, because when we see people carefully curating this narrative that they don't have struggle, I'll bet you my life that there are struggles that you don't see, that nobody has a perfect life. And I think it's time for us as adults to grow up from the sort of young, youthful perspective that just because I see a thing, that that's exactly how it is, like everyone struggles. And, you know, the more I see staged perfection, the more I begin to go, hmm, you know, and so that we should recognize that everybody struggles. And I don't think it's always appropriate that we lay out all of our problems to the world. I mean, I think sometimes some suffering is meant to be private. And I think the irony of my blog is that I'm a very private person. Like, I don't normally share uh, all those kinds of things. But in that context, I did because I felt it was a an important message to share. But. Absolutely. Chris, you just mentioned your birthday and your family came over to celebrate. So I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to talk about there's a new member, a newish member of the family, this teeny tiny little new member, a little girl. Oh my gosh. I got to say, I'm surprised that when I said what makes you happy, that was not the first thing you oh. mentioned. <laughs> so tell us correct. about this new person. I stand deeply corrected. <laughs> little tiny human that my little granddaughter, we call her Winnie, but her name is Winona Reese Berry. And Winnie is like our favorite little human, like just brings up so much joy. And in truth, yeah, the new life like seems to bring in a whole new level of love. And I thought I knew what it was like to have kids and how fun it was. But to have a grandkid, I finally get what my grandparents were talking about. Well, I'm super happy to see that much new love and new joy in your, your own life and in your family's life. Chris, as we sort of wrap up our time together here, and I wish we had like, you know, 12 hours because there's so much we could talk about. But when you think about you know, the journey for your family over, let's just say the last 10 years and all you've, all you've endured and 
all you've gone through and how you've come out on the other side. There's so much that none of us know, so many questions. We don't know what's coming next, but based on what you've seen, what do you know for sure? That's a great question because there are so many things we think we know and we really don't. But the one thing I know for sure is that family is the most important thing in time and eternity. You know, it's the bedrock of civilization. How we raise our children is how we raise our communities and how we heal can oftentimes find root not only in ourselves, but within the family that's closest to us. Who inspires you? Who fills your cup? That's a great question. Everyone that I encounter is my teacher. I'm inspired by everybody's story individually and collectively, you know, as a community and as individuals that rise up against the, whatever challenges they have. But, you know, I'm just deeply fascinated in learning from any, anybody and everything. I, to me, I'm just a hungry sponge that finds inspiration in everybody. Mm. You talked about at the beginning of our conversation when Mitch was diagnosed and what the typical progression is. And then in some cases there are outliers. And, and in our world, we hope, you know, if our child's an outlier, meaning they live longer, Mitchell sadly was an outlier in that his life was shorter, I think, than you would have expected. But I think there are outliers too, in terms of the impact that they make on the world. And I've always seen Mitch that way. And I have to tell you, the more time that I spend with you over the years, I see you that way as an outlier in terms of what you give to the world. What do you hope your legacy is when your time here is done? What do you what do you hope you leave behind? As far as my legacy, I would prefer to just disappear in the sands of time. But I think that the echo of Mitchell's story, I hope that that while his name will be long forgotten, that the habit, the routine, the rituals of spending time and loving each other more intentionally, I hope that stays and I hope that echo effect happens in lives that will never quite know where that changed. So I hope the legacy is more not about our story, but about the people's stories moving forward. To me, that would be super gratifying. I think you can count on that. There's a quote from a Roman warrior and he said, what we do with our lives echoes in eternity. I think Mitchell's life and your telling of it, I think that's already happening. It's just a pleasure always to talk to you, and I'm so glad I get to share you with the world through this interview, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for spending the time, our greatest resource. You spent some of your time with us here today. So grateful to have you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.